Jingophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome back to Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. <laughs> I'm Kaylee McMahon. And uh, okay, real quick before we start, I just want to say a couple seconds before we started recording, my neighbors were having very loud sex upstairs, very loudly, but also very briefly. Like it, it started and then it was over. And it just made me think of the little Monty Python interstitial and now for 10 seconds of sex. Oh. Like, that's exactly what I heard. It's kismet. This recording session is blessed by the union above of my my noisy neighbors. Really? <laughs> yeah. It was like one of those quick little rainstorms where it's like on, off, done. Did you hear both partners? Mostly the woman. I mean, isn't that always the case? That's bullshit then. He prematurely ejaculated and she faked an orgasm and sex is terrible. <laughs> oh well, anyway. on that note, let's talk Python. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming back and joining us for season two, which we will be devoting exclusively to the magic that is Monty Python in all of their absurd glory. And today we're going to be starting off by talking about their television series, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Mm-hmm. Going to try to keep this spiel as brief as possible with the disclaimer that there is exhaustive biographic material on Python. Uh... There are so many wonderful books out there, so many documentaries. The Pythons themselves have written numerous memoirs. Uh, we're just going to give you the Cliff's Notes version. That said, if you are interested in learning more about their origin story or uh, the behind the scenes of their various projects, there is so much information on this subject. It's an embarrassment of riches, so do check it out. Okay, so here we go. Monty Python consists of six writer-performers. We have the Cambridge-educated Graham Chapman and John Cleese, who wrote as a pair, uh, and Eric Idle, who mostly wrote solo. Uh, we also have the Oxford-educated writing duo of Terry Jones and Michael Palin, and finally the token yank Terry Gilliam, who did less performing and writing, but did all of their animations and later on designed their films. So in the 1960s, they were all involved in numerous radio and television comedy programs as writers, performers, or both in various combinations, and they had all met and admired one another's work. And then eventually it was John Cleese who proposed that the six of them unite and work on something together. So they went in and famously pitched a show to the BBC in a meeting where they were unable to answer any of the very basic questions posed to them. Like, what's the show going to be called? Oh, I don't know. What's it going to be about? Oh, I don't know. What's the, what's the tone going to be? Oh. And uh, fortunately for the rest of the world, the guy in charge said, well, all right, you can do 13 episodes. Thus was born Monty Python's Flying Circus, uh, though they only arrived at that title rather late in the process. Uh, also, funny side note, apparently in Japan, the title of the show was translated as Gay Boy's Dragon Show, which is a fact that I love so much. So Monty Python's Flying Circus ran for four seasons from 1969 to 1974. And they also went on to do a bunch of live shows and they made countless records and books. And this season, we're just going to be focusing on Flying Circus, starting with season one, and also their three original films, which are Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life, which was unfortunately their last project together because Graham Chapman sadly died of throat cancer in 1989 at the age of 49. Uh, although the surviving members have done a number of reunions in the intervening years. So, you know, we're left with these incredibly bizarre and phenomenally funny and uh, iconic pieces that are the fruit of 14 years of collaboration between these six really brilliant individuals. It's, I mean, it's hard to emphasize how seminal Monty Python was and, and is. Comedically, 
it it synthesized everything that came before it and influenced everything that came after it. I can't imagine that anyone listening to this hasn't seen any Python, but as luck would have it, these titles were all released on Netflix in the last couple of weeks, so... You know, whether you're a Python neophyte or you're a diehard fan, but you're a little rusty, please go and watch it all and wallow in their sublime silliness. Because I just think that Monty Python is one of life's great pleasures. Like, it's one of the best things on this earth to me. And I've been, I think I texted you when I was five minutes into watching the second episode of season one. And I said, Stephanie, my heart is bursting, all caps, because... I hadn't seen them in so long, but they just, they, they were completely in my head and I was so shocked and pleasantly surprised that so many of my favorites were just in those first two episodes. I thought that was a very sweet text message. I, I mean, was really happy to receive that. Yeah, well, they just, they, usually shows will take a little while to find their footing, but they came right out swinging. Within the first two minutes when John Cleese is Mozart presenting the famous deaths. Oh, yeah. I giggled at everything he said. <laughs> you know, I can only imagine how thrilling it must have been to watch these as they were airing in the social and political and historical context in which they were produced. But honestly, discovering these from ages 9 or 10 to 13, my mind was equally blown, I'm sure, as any kid or teenager discovering this in the 1960s. It's kind of like when you go back and watch... Citizen Kane, <laughs> but you're in the 21st century, and part of you is kind of going, oh yeah, this is this is a good movie, and then you remember when it came out and everything that came before it, and that Orson Welles was very, very young, and that's when you go, oh my fuck, look at the gate, look at, they're dancing, <laughs> that's, oh my that's god, funny. the camera's <laughs> in the floor. So when I was watching Flying Circus this week, I was kind of having those moments of, oh yeah, this is humor as I've always loved it. I love the young ones. I love kids in the hall. I love, I was thinking of all these kind of surrealist, weird things that break the structure that I've loved for, for many, many years. But then I'd remember, oh, they started this. Do you, do you remember what your first exposure to Python was? I think you were talking about it a little bit in the Faulty Towers episode. My parents were talking about the argument sketch mm. and they started quoting it to each other and they went, we've got to go find that. <laughs> and they showed us the argument sketch first. And God, I mean, I don't know how old I was. I was eensy weensy and I was watching that and I thought it was just the most nuanced, <laughs> like yeah. oh, intelligent, high comedy I'd ever seen. And I mean, of course it was. Yeah. I'm four years old. <laughs> but then I think that might have been what sort of sent us off into this weird kind of Monty Python binge of, of whenever that was, because my older brother and I definitely used to say to each other, I don't like the tone in your voice and shoot each other. Like we did that all the time, which is what happens in um, <laughs> the, the party scene That's when um, the, um, Carol Cleveland is doing the, oh no, not at all. On her, on her date with Graham Chapman. And Terry Jones in that sketch I always loved as the obnoxious wife. And I know that once in a shopping mall, I said to my mom, Oh, I wet him. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. We were in this giggle fit for some reason. And she was like, Stephanie, we're going to get in the car now. And I was I was just being a bizarre kid. Yeah. But I vividly remember going, Oh, I wet him. That's... As she was trying to get me to stop giggling. Oh my God. She, after I said, Oh, I wet him. I remember she kind of just like 
it was that silent laughter. Like she couldn't oh, believe yeah. that, that her little daughter just said, oh, I wet him. That's so good. <laughs> anyway. So for me, my first exposure to Python, uh, fucked upily enough, was I think the meaning of life. Maybe not the whole oh, wow. thing. I, but I'm pretty sure that my parents showed me the Mr. Creosote sketch, which is among the more okay, disturbing same. things in the entire Python canon. Same. This is so weird. Yeah. Why'd they show us just Mr. Creosote? I don't. I must have been like maybe eight years old or something. I don't know. I found it more disturbing than funny, but I still was fascinated and I still liked it. And I don't think I connected the dots until many years later when I saw the full movie that that was the same thing as as what followed and what I grew to really really love. But then my next thing was when I was nine or ten. I had a computer game called Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time. Did you ever play this? No. Oh, my God. Okay, so the entire summer between fourth and fifth grade, I spent, I wouldn't say I wasted it. I spent it playing this computer game called Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time. They would have a lot of the animations and the sketches from the show, and you could click on things, and it was interactive. And so there were, I saw, I remember the Lumberjack song. That was my first exposure to that. I really loved that one. And the Spam sketch, and of course, Dead Parrot, and a lot of these really iconic things. And then there were also little sound clips taken out of context, like, oh, me bum, just just little things that when I saw it years later, I was like, oh, I remember that from the computer game. And, uh... God, if I could get my hands on a copy of that game, I would be so curious to play that. Cause that what year was this? This was the summer of 96 that I was playing it. So I mean, what was the quality? You said there were sketches. Would you just hear them or would you see them in full? No, you would see them. It was video. Like you would click on something and then it would show a sketch. Okay. And, oh, God. it was. So, they were, but they also had these weird little games that were sort of like Terry Gilliam animations. There was something called the pig game where you were a cowboy and there were these pigs flying overhead pooping on you and you had to shoot the pig and the poop and if the poop hit you then you would die whoa and then there was the bird game like there was a lot of really weird sort of fucked up stuff about it but god damn it i loved it so much and that sort of set the stage for the python obsession that would ensue and then in eighth grade my mom got (laughs) me the full i mean she got me it was really for the whole family but the full vhs box set of the complete flying circus and i just fell madly in love with the whole damn thing it's so it's so good and just watching like i said watching these first few episodes this week was like oh my god it it has a, the exact same comedic punch as it did when i was 13 like even though obviously a lot has changed in my life and in the world of comedy since then it's still funny like like watching bicycle repair man watching all <laughs> of these men like a, a world full of supermen it's such a simple idea but how the fuck is that still funny 50 years later it's been almost 50 years. Whoa. I know. Next year will be the 50-year anniversary of the premiere of Monty Python's Flying Circus. God, I hate time. <laughs> but it's interesting because it, it helps put into perspective how timeless some things are. And it's amazing to me how much this has stood the test of time. One of my favorite sketches in the first episode, this was this is where I was just bowled over, like, oh my god, I can't believe that this was in their first episode, is the funniest joke in the world. Me too. That I remember just thinking it was so funny as a kid. And, you know, the the German gibberish and using the joke warfare. There's so many brilliant little things about it. And then there's just these little playful inversions of common phrases like comedy struck and peace broke out. So it's just painting this picture of this really silly, topsy-turvy little world. Basically, there's this joke writer who writes the funniest joke in the world. It's so funny that he dies laughing, which <laughs> what a way to go. That's what I want. And then his wife or his mother... I don't know which it is. 
they all kind of look the same when they're dressing up as women but she she finds the the joke in his hands she also laughs herself to death and a policeman goes in and more and more and then eventually the joke becomes weaponized in world war ii and they translate the joke into german of course like right in episode one there's immediate nazi humor what is the big joke i can only give you a name frank and why did the chicken cross the road that's not funny And it's so great because I was laughing hysterically at the absurdity of it when I was a kid, but now it's also got so many other layers to it because it's like this fantastic commentary on how comedy, it it is and it isn't. It's like comedy is dangerous and it, you know, you can have all of these really subversive ideas and people get so afraid of the threats that jokes can pose to the status quo. But at the same time, it's not actually that dangerous. Like, words can have the power to shape the world and to hurt people, but, like, not that much. Like, you were saying in our in our season finale, when we were talking about AbFab, how you found it sort of comforting that things don't really change and that comedy yeah. doesn't really change because there's always going to be the same problems. There's always going to be the authority figures representing, you know, fascism and the establishment, and there's always going to be the people who are too sensitive, liberal little snowflakes. The terminology surrounding them may change, but the basic archetypes don't. And so satire, it's something that can be slightly effective, but it also kind of isn't because we're still living in much the same world as 50 years ago, just with some slight differences. And that's why these things are always funny. <laughs> so many of these sketches have that same feel of like, oh, it's it's biting satire, but it also is sort of inconsequential and doesn't really matter. I mean, talk about having your cake and eating it too. There's all this random, zany, madcap humor. It's very surreal. The episode styles and structures are very stream of consciousness, but they sort of punch in every direction. Like it's sort of, it's equal opportunity. I wouldn't even call it offensive necessarily, but their targets are so varied that it never, it doesn't leave anybody out. You know what I mean? Oh no. I mean, (laughs) they, they go after stockbrokers and accountants yes, you know exactly. it's like nobody <laughs> boring yeah nobody's left out and in terms of class also they you know they have a go at lower classes in terms of the gumbies but they also have some really amazing punches at, at the upper class another of oh, my yeah. favorite sketches is the upper class twit of the year unfortunately i don't think that this is necessarily one that would lend itself to playing a clip because it's so visual, but it's just one of the, it's perfection. Like it has everything. It has the visual gags. It has the, the smart satire and, and the sending up of a very specific class of person, but it's also so absurd and ridiculous. And it can be enjoyed by a little kid who doesn't exactly understand the British class system. I mean, I say as an adult American, I still, I recognize that there are things about this show that I will never fully understand because I grew up here and I'm never going to be steeped in that culture. But It transcends oceans and decades. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that one of the most effective sketches about classism is (laughs) the father. That's my other favorite season. Oh my my God. Yeah, Graham Chapman as the father who, you know, Eric Idle comes home and he's wearing a suit. And at first you think that the father is this lower working class man who's angry at his son for going off to college and having these opportunities. But Eric Idle works in a coal mine. And the father is this famous playwright. And Terry Jones is the mom, just the mom, just begging her, her son and husband to stop fighting. That's so good. That is hilarious to me. (laughs) How are you liking it down the mine, Ken? Oh, it's not too bad, mum. 
We're using some new tungsten carbide drills for the preliminary coalface scaring operations. Oh, that sounds nice, dear. Tungsten carbide drills? What the bloody hell's tungsten carbide drills? It's something they use in coal mining, Father. It's something they use in coal mining, Father. You bloody fancy talk since you left London. Well, not that again. Oh. He's had a hard day, dear. His new play opens at National Theatre tomorrow. Oh, that's good. Good? Good? What do you know about it? What do you know about getting up at five o'clock in the morning to fly to Paris, back at the old Vic for drinks at 12, sweating the day through press interviews, television interviews, then getting back here at 10 to wrestle with the problem of an homosexual nymphomaniac drug addict involved in the ritual murder of a well-known Scottish footballer? That's a full working day, lad. And don't you forget it! I think that that one does a good job of transcending oceans because, I, of course, I'm not going to be able to think of examples right away, but that that was happening in, in the 60s and 70s, like you, you kids with your music and your idealism and you know we worked yeah. so hard and no one gave us anything and Eric Idle's stupid speech about you know there, there's more to life than culture there's <laughs> there's dirt and smoke and cut on a sweat <laughs> yeah oh it's so yeah. good that was another one that was just a favorite and when I saw that it was just in the first couple episodes I was like oh my god it was really really good however I will admit that episode two was kind of it was like I was up on this, you know, Monty Python high, and then that I kind of feel like is that first example of exploiting Carol Cleveland when mm -hmm. she and Michael Palin are married and they go to the, the marriage, marriage counselor. counselor. I, I love really that sketch, don't. though. It's you so do? Good. I really don't. Oh, God, I loved that so much as a kid. I think it's because I wanted to be Carol Cleveland because I totally want to be married to Michael Palin and fuck Eric Idle on the side. I mean, that's every girl's dream, right? You know what? <laughs> young, young them. Not now. It's my dream, but I kind of also feel... I no, yeah, know. there's definitely a lot to talk about concerning Carol Cleveland. You know, coming off of watching AbFab for a couple weeks and how you were saying it's it's not only a world run by women, or, or this microcosm, yeah. you know, so run by women, but there's an absence of misogyny. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought, and here we go. We've got the bimbo nympho wife. Yeah. What's up? But she's not going to say anything. Yeah, it is kind of a bummer to come off of our last season finale where it's like, yeah, girl power, and go straight back into the sausage fest. I mean, there's some fine-ass sausage to be had here but yeah point point taken you know i don't want to sound like a complete raging hypocrite because obviously the first you know five episodes of our show were like oh blackadder oh father ted oh men 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 look at them be geniuses you know <laughs> now i'm saying it as if i didn't yes. enjoy that at all I, I absolutely loved it but um no, i will I... <laughs> say though that none of the other shows we watched had like full-on boobs and there weren't a ton of women but the women that were featured did get to speak yeah but here we you know we do see kind of for the first time in the shows that we're talking about is the women as set pieces and they're all yeah. buxom and blonde and silent and yeah. i it took me an episode or two to kind of shake that off it's interesting yeah and it in order to be a woman in the world you have to sort of have this cognitive dissonance in order to enjoy anything you have to just be like oh, yes but I that know. is the world that we live in or yes but that was the world that they lived in 50 years ago and this is something that I enjoyed so much as a kid. And watching it now as an adult woman, I do feel a little bit conflicted. I still love it unequivocally and unconditionally. But I'm, I'm struggling to articulate what I mean to say here. You know how when you're a kid, specifically when you're a girl, you can watch things where it's all about boys and you don't really notice it and you don't feel like you're not in on the joke and you don't Completely. get that it's not for you until you af mm -hmm. after you go through puberty and you realize, oh, I'm a woman. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. Because, like, there's, you know, 
in addition to having the the women who are sort of set pieces for the most part there's all those animations and I do love the animations but there's so many naked women there's just like a it's oversaturated with boobs and like it didn't really bother me as a kid and it still doesn't bother me per se but as a kid it was like ooh, this is naughty and titillating and I don't have boobs. I mean, pfft, I, I still don't have boobs, but, you know, it was like, that's what grown-up sex means. And it was very sort of thrilling to me in the same way that I'm sure it was for, for boys who grew up watching it. And, yeah, there's there's a sort of heartbreaking thing that happens when you grow up female where at some point you realize that that you're not in on the joke or you're not meant to be in on the joke or the things that you love, it your loving them is sort of accidental it nothing was really made for you yeah well I read an interview with Carol Cleveland from a couple years ago when she wrote a book and she said that she had you know she had a wonderful time and she didn't have anything negative to say about any of these people and she talked about how wonderful you know Michael Palin is and all all the things that you want to hear and it was interesting she said that Michael Palin said to her one day, I'm so sorry we don't have more for you to do. It's just that we don't know how to write for women. Oh, girl. Okay. And she well. went, it's fine. And I just kind of can't help but think about when when you talked about Connie Booth saying to John Cleese, yeah. a woman would never say that. And rather than going, oh, well, I'll just cut her character out completely. He kind of brought her along for the ride. And I suppose that's kind of what I'm hoping for is that someone would have said, oh, well, what what would you say if you were yeah. a newlywed in a mattress shop and all of this were happening around you? But instead they make a joke out of, it's my only line. Yeah, which is a fun and running would, gag and I do love that, it, but, it, but I, it, I understand. It is a fun running gag, but I kind of feel like it would be even better if the show were more egalitarian. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that everything yeah. would be better if it were more egalitarian, but such is the world that we live in. Yeah, yeah. I definitely want to talk about Carol Cleveland because she's sort of the the unofficial seventh member of the group like she she's a big part of it but again she she is and she isn't she's it's very clearly a boys club and she's along for the ride and she you know had a part in many of the most iconic scenes in the movies and many of the most iconic sketches but the way that they use women on this show whenever there's something funny for a woman to do they just put on a dress and a high screechy voice I think Eric Idle is the only one who doesn't do a screechy voice. His is sort of more of a naturalistic, like, and my voice is a little bit softer, and now I'm a woman, and I kind of like yes, that. Yes, I like that too. It's... Although the Terry Jones voice, I think, is oh like no, I mean, he's, what you he's think of when funny. you think of Monty Python women voices. Terry Jones is a fantastic woman, uh, not a realistic one, but but highly entertaining. And since again, it's the world of sketch comedy. If you just forget that like the patriarchy exists outside of it, then it's delightful and wonderful, and I'm fine with it. But totally. You know, I have to give Carol Cleveland credit because she's very funny, like to the extent that she's allowed to be funny, because she's really only there when they actually need a woman who is physically, obviously female in order to be a sex object. But she manages somehow to be funny and sexy at the same time, which is a very difficult thing to do. I myself have only ever managed one of the two. Can you guess which it is? <laughs> but um, in episode eleven, though, another kind of Carol Cleveland thing that didn't sit quite right with me is in the Royal Philharmonic goes to the bathroom. There's that scene about 18th century social legislation where they have her on the bed and she's in very sexy lingerie, mouthing John Cleese's VO while you know, kind of shaking her ass and her boobs and looking coyly at the camera and I get I get how it is funny I suppose that we've got this 
sex pot woman doing all of these like pornographic poses while talking about 18th century history but it does kind of bother me that they didn't just let her say the dialogue that they had written and it it's kind of and it's only when I think about how they admitted we don't know how to write for a woman that I go but she could literally just say what you wrote about 18th century social legislation I don't know I had a hard I had a hard time with it did you I get it I mean I think that that clip actually just epitomizes why Carol Cleveland is so great because it's the perfect example of her being very funny and very sexy at the same time and I think that there is something really hilarious about the juxtaposition of that deep serious man's voice coming out of that sexy playful woman's body to me, it sort of dances on the line between satire and just being the yeah, thing that it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, people will say, oh, sex sells. And in order to get people's attention on things that are otherwise very boring or unsexy, they will use naked or nearly naked women to entice male viewers to pay attention. And it it seems like it's almost a commentary on that. But again, having their cake and eating it too. Yeah, so it's much. it's clearly... I I wish it were a commentary on that, but when you look at all of the other material given to women, it clearly isn't. (laughs) Yeah, It's it's not. That's the generous interpretation. And I think that Carol Leland, she was so good at what she did. I mean, she's, she's just doing the absolute best and giving her all to what she's given, which is ultimately very little. They just didn't, it's not that they can't write for women, it's that they didn't want to. The idea of, oh, we don't know how to write for women as if we are aliens. Yes, exactly. Women are just people. Anyway, one of the skits that I absolutely love, (laughs) the one about the aliens that turn people into Scotsmen. Oh my god. So I love science fiction sketch for many, many reasons. Starting from the very, very beginning, John Cleese's voiceover over images of space, Mm -hmm. how he just keeps saying it's billions of miles long by these billions of miles wide and there are billions of planets. I kind of go, yeah, that's my fundamental understanding of the universe and space (laughs) as well. Like, that's exactly what I would say. But we've, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll explore the plot of it, I'm sure. But the woman who plays Graham Chapman's bimbo blonde girlfriend... Is not funny. And it's kind of like she's doing everything right, but I don't laugh. Do you laugh? No, she's no Carol Cleveland. And I think that the reason that they brought Carol back so many times to be a staple for them is that, like I said, she was able to be funny and sexy at the same time, which is a very difficult balance to strike as a woman. Full disclosure, after Angus said the man from Andromeda who ordered the kilts wasn't so much a man as a blamange. (laughs) Now, we've got these aliens from Andromeda who are turning the people of England into Scotsmen who have big red beards and wear kilts and (laughs) so this man from Andromeda calls up this local kilt maker and orders 48 million kilts and obviously it's a huge sale and so Angus the kilt maker and his wife are discussing the order but yeah when they said he wasn't so much a man as a blamange I went, what the hell is a blamange? <laughs> and <laughs> Had you not seen this sketch as a kid? I, if I did, I don't remember it. Oh my God. But That's really the, the, uh, the, the definition of what a blamange is did not uh, gel in my mind. And so I Googled it and I went, 
okay. And then I went, that's that, that, that's very silly. That's too silly. I became Graham Chapman for a second. Um, but I went, okay, got it. This is zany, isn't it? But then every time they said blamange, I, I laughed like louder each time. And then when we finally had the blamange on the tennis oh, court, so I, I, was, I was dying. My absolute favorite episode from start to finish when I was a kid was episode four, Owl Stretching Time, which is the one oh. with the teeth. I think mm-hmm. that that is my favorite for a variety of reasons. I mean, Defense Against Fresh Fruit killed me. No smarty pants! The 16 ton weight is just one way, just one way! From killing the raspberry killer! There are millions of others! Like what? Shoot him! Well, supposing you haven't got a gun or a 16 ton All right, clever dick! All right, clever dick! You two! Cover me with raspberries, they are all basket each. Come on, cover me with a men. No gun? No. No 16 ton weight? No. No pointed stick? Shut up. No rocks up in the ceiling? No. You won't kill us? I won't kill you. Promise? I promise I won't kill you. Now you don't attack me. All right. Right, now don't rush me this time. I'm going to turn me back so you can stalk me, right? Come up as quietly as you can. Right, close up behind me. Then... In with the raspberries, right? Start moving! Now, the first thing to do when you're being stalked by an ugly mob with raspberries is to release the tiger! <laughs> the great advantage of the tiger in unarmed combat is that it not only eats the raspberry-laden foe, but also the raspberries! That was one of those moments where I thought that my lungs were going to explode from laughter. And what's so cool about this show is the way that the sketches sort of bleed into one another. They're not as tightly structured in such a way as like, and build, 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 and punchline, and done, and clear delineation into the next sketch. It was very sort of freewheeling and stream of consciousness style, and then there would be animations that would sort of lead into from, from one sketch to another, or sometimes a sketch would turn into something completely different, as with the homicidal barber and the lumberjack song. So good. But I think that the thread, there are certain threads that will connect things like it's my only line or like the pigs in episode one or the sheep in episode two, (laughs) just just little, little like motifs that don't necessarily make, oh, yes, this is a very tight theme. And I understand the symbolism, but they just they make an episode make sense as a whole, even when it contains a lot of random bits. And I think that my favorite framing device in that way is the it's a man's life in the blanket, like in the modern army. And that was and, fantastic. and Graham Chapman coming in as the as the stern colonel trying to disrupt the fun is such a fantastic way to end any sketch and to get out of anything without needing to write a punchline. It's so good. And then, yeah, the running joke of it's a man's life in you know, taking your clothes off in public. It's a man's life in the British Dental Association. It's so funny. I love that you brought up a man's life taking your clothes off in public. <laughs> in, in, in which we have Terry Jones trying to change into his bathing suit on the beach. It reminded me of Mr. Bean. Totally When same. Mr. Bean wanted to change into into his um shorts, but there was that blind man. But yeah, it, it just kind of becomes a matter of Terry Jones looking for some privacy to change into his swim trunks. And then he ends up in a theater behind a curtain and the curtain opens and he's in front of a live audience and this like... burlesque music comes on and he just goes with it and does this very stupid striptease and I laughed so hard and I love when you can take something kind of that simple and it shocks the shit out of your audience and they can't help but laugh like 
if you think about it, oh, there's a man doing a goofy dance. Eh, sure. Yeah. How many times have we seen that? But Context it just, is everything. Context is everything. He's been trying to change in private and not have anybody see him the entire time. But then he's on a stage and what else is he going to do but kind of yeah. make it sexy? And that's kind of a perfect example. It, it is that rare Monty Python sketch that does have a button. We said that a lot of times they'll just, you know, Graham Chapman will come in and interrupt a sketch or they'll have some sort of animation lead us out or or the knight with the rubber chicken will clock somebody over the head and then that's that. But yeah, that was that was one that it had that beautiful twist to cap it off. And it's it's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I love that. I read a quote that Terry Jones was very nervous about doing that because he had no idea exactly what he was going to do or how he was going to strip. And he said, I think I hadn't even ever seen a strip tease before that. (laughs) <laughs> you nailed it, Terry. <laughs> um, Beginner's luck. Speaking of Terry Jones, I, I, I kind of, in, in, in my old age, I kind of find myself being attracted to stranger and stranger people. <laughs> if you listen to the Blackadder episode, you know exactly what I'm referring to. <laughs> but I kind of, it was when they had Terry Jones making out with the sexy blonde mm. that I kind of went, mmm. What's up, Terry Jones? You know what's so funny is that I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I was like, and you know what's so funny is that, yeah, I mentioned Michael Palin is my forever crush. But yeah, for me too. Like, maybe it's because I'm like that age now and they don't seem quite so old. But like, I kind of found myself being like, oh, okay, okay, Terry. Like, um, I'm not, I could get on board with that. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm so glad we had the same thought. Isn't he also the shortest one at like five foot eight? I think that I Googled all of their heights. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it said Michael Palin is five foot ten, Eric Idle and John Cleese are in the in the six foot range, with Cleese being like six foot four. Yeah. And then yeah, I think Terry Jones is about five foot eight, which as as my father is, I think like five foot six <laughs> high, high, and I'm not saying no. In a weird, like, Trumpian way, but you know how they say that, like, your dad, whether you like it or not, is, like, some sort of template for the kind of people that you're attracted to later. And so, yeah, height has never been a qualification for me, personally, Mm. and I think it's because I've got a short dad with big shoulders. And so, yeah, it doesn't bother me that Terry Jones is, quote, only five foot eight. I kind of like it. Yeah. I think that if we're talking, if we're going to go this Freudian this quickly, I mean, my dad yeah. has the best head of hair ever. Like, he's ruined me for all balding men. And uh, I got to say that Michael Palin also has fantastic Your dad does have a good head of hair. Yeah, my, my dad is almost 70, and he has the same hairline that he had when he was in his 20s. And it's only now starting to go a little salt and pepper. But like, it's just I, better. What's up, Pat McMahon? No, I mean, it's fantastic. He has, he has fantastic, like, 60s hair. Um, yeah. 1960s, no, he not, does. like, in his 60s. Having seen some some pythons out in the wild, have you ever seen pythons out in the wild? No, goddammit. Oh my god. I saw John Cleese. I was in college and my family had rented a house in Newport Beach and I brought a friend. I will not say her name, but she began menstruating. So we needed to hop in the car and drive to Albertsons to get like, you know, fucking pads, oh. which is always stupid. First time and, someone's um, period has paid off in history. Continue. No, no, seriously. And so we were in line at this 
Albertsons. And, you know, we've just got the pads on the conveyor belt. And she turned to me and she goes, okay, is it just me? Or does this very tall man look exactly like John Cleese? And he was in the next checkout stand. And I looked at him and I saw him in profile. And he's got, you know, the gray hair. And he was wearing a polo shirt that was tucked in. And he was waiting to check out. And he was eating almonds out of the bag (laughs) that, that he had opened prematurely. And it's like, you look at him and it's just that startling, oh, fuck, it's John Cleese. Oh, and we nice. were silently squealing as if he were Justin Timberlake or something. I mean, like, yeah, we were, fuck oh, Justin God, Timberlake. God. He's just a musician. He didn't change comedy forever. I mean, no, but, I love but you know what I mean. but you... if, I, if I could only save the Pythons or or Justin Timberlake from a burning building. Okay, fine. We It, it was yeah. as if it was That's 1960-whatever, and we were 15, and we saw Paul McCartney. Oh, like, yeah. We were, oh, yeah. We, we were absolutely having a, a total breakdown over John fucking Cleese, and we just kind of watched him walk through the parking lot, and we were like, we have to say hi. We don't need to bother him. We don't need to get a picture. We just need to say, we love you, John Cleese, and, and run away. But then we didn't. And um, our other friend was with us who didn't really care or know, and she just walked Some right after him and went, and went, my friends love you. Oh, some friend. Seriously, she made the whole thing happen. Oh, she okay. goes, my friends love you. And he smiles and goes, oh, well, they shy. And walked right up to us and, like, gave each of us a firm handshake and then oh. said, I've got to find my car and, and walked away. It was so Oh, lovely. my God. And a group oh. of... um you know, teenage boys or early 20s boys, they they were standing nearby and they just yelled like, love you, John. And he, he waved, oh. just kind of looked like someone who really wasn't bothered by, oh yeah, all I wanted was to get some almonds at Albertsons today, but people yeah. love me and I'm going to smile at them. Oh, no, like I really fantastic. loved that about I love him. hearing that about people that I admire. Well, and then I saw Eric Idle at a pub in Studio City oh, just God. a handful of years ago. It was terrible, Kaylee, because... I met this this bar in Studio City with a friend and this older man was sitting there and I looked at her, but I had one eye on him and I went, is that Eric Idle? And as I mouthed that, he looked at me Oh. and I went, oh no, I didn't, I didn't mean to, I swear. But he just sat there on his phone. He drank a Boddington's and then he left. And then we were like, what the fuck? No, it's so good. Oh, I'm oh, so jealous. You're was... two for five. I'm zero, man. I know. I uh, know. Well, five. Well, that are alive. I can't. I, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, My night with Eric Idle. I love that courtroom sketch where Eric Idle has that, that thing about freedom, that fantastic speech that obviously anytime that we say that something from Python reminds us of something that we talked about in our first season, that stuff came way later. But it reminded mm-hmm. me a little bit of Adina Monsoon giving her speech about freedom when she's talking about a similar parking offense. Well, I'd just like to say, my lad, I've uh, I've got a family, a wife and six kids, and I hope very much you don't have to take away my freedom because, well, because, my lord, freedom is a state much prized within the realm of civilized society. It is a bond wherewith the savage man may charm the outward hatchments of his soul and soothe the troubled breast into a magnitude of quiet. It is most precious as a blessed bar, the saviour of princes, the harbinger of happiness, yea, the very stuff and pith of all we hold most dear. What frees the prisoner in his lonely cell, chained within the bondage of rude walls, far from their owl of thieves? What fires and stirs the woodcock in his springe, or wakes the drowsy apricot betide? What goddess doth the storm-tossed mariner offer most tempestuous prayers to? Freedom! 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 It's only a bloody parking offence. <laughs>
And then Michael Palin as Cardinal Richelieu comes in and uh, there's there's a coffin that comes in and the witness is clearly dead and knocking yes. once for yes and twice for no, but then he really dies. The whole thing is so absurd and it's such a great... It kind of reminds me of like the trial scene in Alice in Wonderland where it just seems like it's not making any sort of specific political commentary on the insanity of the justice system. But it, right. it, but it just sort of feels to be poking a general fun at the weirdness of this thing. And then Detective Inspector Dim comes in and sings a song about being a window cleaner. The whole it, it just it devolves into this fantastic circus. And I just I just love how bizarre it is. And what a lot of these sketches do is it pokes fun at like the stuffiness of a lot of things in British society, whether it's the nature of a courtroom or whether it's Queen Victoria turned into a wacky silent film star wreaking all of this havoc and having all of these ridiculous hijinks. And uh, it's sort of the gentle profaning of the sacred that makes this so fun and I'm sure made it so revolutionary for its time. Mm -hmm. Just today when I was on the subway... I was thinking about the Lumberjack song, which everybody knows. We don't even need to yeah. play a clip because everybody, I'm sure, who's tuning in knows it by heart, can sing it right now. I dare you. <laughs> you know what on second thought? Let's let's play a clip. I cut down trees, I skip and jump. I like to press wildflowers. I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars. Cuts down trees, he skips and jumps. He likes to press wildflowers. He puts on women's clothing. and you know and i've i've been familiar with it for over two-thirds of my life at this point but i was just thinking about it and i started giggling just because it's still how is that still funny well, because it goes into a place that's even more random and, and shocking than it was at the beginning. Yeah. You already don't see it coming that he's going to sing a song about being a lumberjack. And then you don't see that devolving into, I wish I were a girl and just like my dear mama. Oh my God, it's so funny. But I put on women's clothing and hang around in bars is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. I've the songs on this are so good, but that's obviously just like and, the most iconic and it's his smiling face. Oh yeah, and just, slapping his knee as uh, as Connie Booth's face sort of falls with each subsequent verse. And hang around in bars. Yeah, and then the and the the chorus of Mounties backing him up, kind of getting a little bit skeptical, but then jumping right back into the chorus and and then finally being so disgusted. Oh, another thing that I wanted to talk about is a great transition that they do in order to get in and out of sketches is all of those those angry letters from viewers to the I, BBC. Oh, they're, they're so, so realistic. And it goes back to what you were saying when we were talking about how like people never really change and comedy never really changes. And, and it, you know, people have been offended forever. And sometimes that's legitimate. Like if you're a comedian and you say that someone in your audience deserves to be raped, kind of fuck you a little bit or a lot. But like... God, if relax, Kaylee. <laughs> but, but, you know, the idea that that uh, something 
as innocuous i mean not, not to call monty python innocuous it was obviously very groundbreaking but you know that's not going to cause you know anarchy and the full breakdown of civilized society it's just people overreacting to the tiniest little things like suggesting that lumberjacks are transvestites or it's such a funny and then there are letters about like i object to the previous letter and they're they get increasingly absurd and it's a very the show is very self-aware in that way yeah they frequently will break the fourth wall and say well this sketch isn't really working out and then they'll just sort of abandon it they sort of get out ahead of any criticism that could be hurled at them. It's like they're predicting what people are going to say, and then it's like, ah, beat you to the punch. Well, and as a millennial who is often accused of being too sensitive to live my life, it was actually really nice that there were those letters in the beginning that were clearly written by older people. There's the one saying, my husband, like many people his age, is in his 50s. <laughs> and that that's the entire, you know, yes. I, I object to the previous sketch. My husband, just like many other good working people, is in his 50s. Yeah. <laughs> That was the entire complaint. And it was just like, yeah, old old middle-aged people get, get entirely too offended by things as well. It's not it's not just young libtards. Oh yeah. I say that with love. And yeah. it and it sort of reminds me of something that I think we said in the Faulty Towers episode about the place that political incorrectness had then versus now. Because back then it really was about freaking out the conservatives. And now it seems to be more about freaking out the liberals. And about saying these really, like, like, there's nothing in Monty Python, except for, like, you know, when someone dresses up as a Native American or as an African tribesman, that I'm not yeah, totally yeah, cool yeah, with. Yeah. But, like, there's nothing else, there's nothing that they say that is that is deeply, horrifyingly offensive to any oppressed group of people. We already talked about, like, there, there are issues with women, but, like, whatever. I can give it all a pass because they're so fucking brilliant. I don't even care. But Contributing to that endless cycle. I mean, you and know, my... what's one more drop in the ocean? But uh, th there's nothing that, that is excessively mean-spirited. Whereas if you think about something like Family Guy, where it's just like intentionally pushing all of the racist and rapey, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic buttons, it's like they're just, they're just like little boys being like, haha, like poking you in order to get a reaction like a fucking toddler who who goes for like you, you know what i mean like just to rebel against his mother like oh, i'm gonna be naughty <laughs> punish me you know versus this was this was really about making light of absolutely everything my friend and i once went to get tarot cards read at a funky place in sherman oaks called the psychic eye it was just on a whim like a saturday mm -hmm. night thing and in my opinion we were completely ripped off because this tarot card lady was kind of talking about everything except our futures and our present struggles or whatever. But she said to me, Seth MacFarlane is going to become a lot nicer the second that he comes out. Whoa. Yeah. $25 well spent for that line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the subject of, you know, being a girl who loves Monty Python when that's not a thing that you're supposed to love or a thing that is made for you. I remember being 14 or 15 and seeing a commercial on BBC America and the entire commercial was, you know, the sketch with John and Michael when they're in the costumes as the Frenchman talking about uh, turning a sheep into an airplane and it's speaking all of this French going bah, bah, and, and flapping their arms and being very silly. It just showed a little clip of that with the caption like, fellas, if your girlfriend laughs at this, marry her. 
and oh. I remember thinking, oh, if only I had a boyfriend, then I could have a fiance. Because if if loving Python is the only thing that makes someone an eligible bachelorette, then like, damn, who's more eligible than me? But then later on, i.e. now, I think that's a kind of insulting implication that like most girls don't like Monty Python because I think of Monty Python as being one of those universally beloved comedic properties that everybody can, can find something to connect with. Dude, it's really creepy to think that you might be wrong about that. Oh, God. If I mean, I, pers- <laughs> personally, I don't. I just think about the people who conceived that idea and then said, oh, yeah, totally. That's exactly the copy that we're we're going to use. And it's going to be great. <laughs> and dudes at home laughing at it. I just I don't know. That makes me nervous. I don't like that at all. There's also this this terrible joke on Family Guy. It's but it's not at all the most terrible joke on Family Guy. But I think that someone is torturing Meg in like a cutaway and says, we're going to show you the the 95 percent of Monty Python's flying circus that isn't good or memorable. And at first I was like, oh, that's offensive. I take umbrage at that because it's all great and then the second thing is that meg says i'm a girl i don't even like the good stuff from monty python and i was just like oh how dare you sirs how dare you imply what what that's insanity i can't believe that that's so stupid i know monty python's the best fuck you everybody else (laughs) you know I, i think i mentioned that one sort of recurring character or theme is is Graham Chapman coming in as the stuffy old army officer or sometimes a policeman and disrupting the proceedings. Yeah. And there's, much like with the young ones, there's a lot of anti-police stuff. But again, in the same way as like with the young ones, policemen were big fans of this show. They don't punch so hard as to alienate anybody. And also it, it goes back to what we were saying about how like the funniest joke in the world, jokes don't actually have that much power to change anything because nobody really ever sees themselves fully they can they everybody can laugh at something that they think is about other people and very unless it's a roast of you specifically it Mm. no no one ever sees themselves in comedy yeah but yeah nothing in this really ever gets that malicious and then again with like with the mild sexism it's nothing it's still not like horrifying in the way that like very very rapey mean disgusting things that are made now are it's just like Mm -hmm. it's excluding women and again I can give it a pass because it's something that I loved so early in my childhood before I became a woman and realized that I was an outsider it's kind of like (laughs) when you visited here in New York a few years ago we were walking past the Museum of Natural History and you were talking (laughs) about how you had gone in there the, the previous day with your family and I said yeah I always I, I really love the hall of African mammals and it sort of is gross and creepy to think that like oh they're all real dead animals but like it, I can accept it because as a kid I didn't know I, I didn't really care so like because that fondness was established in my childhood I can I'm totally okay with the fact that they're just dead animals and then Stephanie and I said, said they're dead animals <laughs> like, those animals I... were real and i was like well yeah what did you think they were gonna it's so much easier to just shoot something than it is to faithfully recreate a giraffe had no fucking idea but then you said well but like the cavemen and the neanderthals were fake and i was like yeah i bet that if they could have found a stuffed caveman they probably would have just done that too <laughs> oh, actually speaking of animals there is a lot of animal humor on this show i think that Animals are to Monty Python what vegetables are to Blackadder. Do you agree with that statement? I see where you're going, but I do think that Flying Circus still abides by that rule that animal slaughter is okay. 
and and I don't know if there's vegetable slaughter in Blackadder. I mean, just just in terms of it's not always violent against animals. Like there's the the gorilla coming in for the interview to be a librarian or releasing a tiger in the self-defense class. Like they, oh, they, yeah. there's just a no, lot it, it, of times when just the absurdity or confuse a cat is another one where the animal doesn't suffer. You know what? That's true. Yeah. In in that respect, yes. But the the dead parrot is dead and then gets whacked against the counter and um in, in the other fantastic John Cleese, Michael Palin, John Cleese entering a shop sketch, I'd like to buy a cat. Yeah. Got a lovely terrier. And then Michael Palin just yes. keeps trying to, to negotiate the different ways that he can dismember this terrier to make it look more like whatever animal John Cleese wants. Yeah. Terriers make lovely fish. Yeah. <laughs> you need a very big fish tank. Yeah. It's a great conversation piece. Only if I can watch. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was more what came to mind when you mentioned Sure, animals. yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely some jokes about the mutilation of, of animals, but there's also just a lot of, even, even when they're off screen, like being a camel spotter or like uh, wanting the, uh, the, the chartered accountant, Michael Palin is the chartered accountant going to the career counselor who wants to become a lion tamer but then he talks about a lion and it's actually an anteater that he's thinking of that he wants to tame so there's just yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of silliness in playing around with the animal kingdom yeah oh god and um the dirty fork sketch is another great one my improv teacher for when i was learning the herald he gave us some homework to when we were talking about heightening and group game. He said, mm-hmm. go watch the Dirty Fork sketch and the Cheese Shop sketch. And it really is just a masterclass in heightening and how each character has a different way of, of overreacting to this, not even really complaint, but just a tiny little quibble about a dirty fork. Well, I'm so glad that that sketch doesn't just end with, good thing I didn't tell him about the dirty knife, you have the interruption, and now the punchline. Like, that, for me, makes it so much better. It's the same sort of self-consciousness that we talked about the young ones having, where rather than just doing the obvious thing, they step outside of it and say, yes, we know that we're doing the obvious thing, and we're winking at you because it's all right. Like, that that self-awareness is what makes it so funny and fun. Dude, talk about Flying Circus's influence. I can't help but think of the young ones when I'm watching an episode of Flying Circus. And it makes me smile that you look at Flying Circus, and even for a sketch show, there's a lot of experimental shit going on with the transitions and the the randomness. There's still a lot of, wait, what? How'd we get here? And for them to go, oh, we can do this with a situational comedy. (laughs) It just makes me so happy. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, Yeah. talking about, you know, the the structures, I I feel like I've said this, I've probably repeated myself a lot, talking about uh, Terry Gilliam's animations being sort of the, the connective material between these sketches. Yeah. It kind of reminds me because they did make me think about uh, the young ones and the cutaways and the puppet gags and everything like that. But I think that they sort of, the, the roles on it are reversed. And what I mean by that is that we had talked about also it being sort of like a musical comedy where there's these songs that are diversions from the action and then they go back into the story. And I think mm-hmm. that instead of Terry Gilliam's animations being like the songs in a musical, I think it's more like the book in a musical. I feel like he is sort of like the librettist, if that makes sense. Because I remember being at some sort of panel, if or maybe like at the Writers Guild in LA or something many years ago, and a screenwriter for Beauty and the Beast was talking about, like it, it was just a panel of musical theater librettists and how it's such a thankless job because 
you know, you you have someone burst in and sing a song and, oh, it's so magnificent and you get all the glory and then you're left to clean up the mess. And I feel Mm -hmm. like each of these sketches is such a gem and they're all such classics and we can all quote them and we love them so much. And then it's sort of left to Terry Gilliam to be like, okay, how, how can that go into that? It's like... It's not it's not the fun part. It's not the marshmallows of the Lucky Charms. It's the cereal. It's still, you know, bright and colorful and fun, but it is sort of it it's the ligaments of of the whole thing, whereas the the mm-hmm. sketches are the bones. I thought I thought that that was interesting. The the second you said Beauty and the Beast, I I was listening to what you were saying and it's a great point, but the second you said Beauty and the Beast in my, in my head I just heard Lafu, I'm afraid I've been thinking a dangerous pastime. I know. <laughs> We're definitely going to have to cut this because Disney is litigious, but I'm glad we're doing it now. No, but but do you ever have to just belt something out? You're like, just give me a second. Girl, and then who do you think I'm I am? Finished. Have we met? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another great connective material is, and now for something completely different, obviously it's great. a man with three buttocks, a man with three noses, uh, a man with a tape recorder up his nose slaughtered me as a child and a man with a tape recorder up his brother's nose. Like how actually <laughs> my senior yearbook quote, I don't know if you remember this was, and now for something completely different. I remember that. Yeah. It felt like the perfect that. way to, uh, to tip my hat to something that I dearly loved while also accurately reflecting what was going on. High school's mm-hmm. over, and now for something completely different. Something completely different. Yeah. No, it was it was good. It worked. God, other things that I really loved as a kid, um, story time, when Eric Idle is telling all those fairy stories that become increasingly sexual and dirty and perverted. Rumpeltweezer ran the dinky tinky shop in the foot of the magic oak tree by the wobbly dum-dum bush in the shade of the magic glade down in Dingley Dell. Here he sold contraceptives and... <laughs> Discipline, naked, with a melon. That was another one that was on Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time, and at the age of nine or ten, I was so fascinated. I was like, this is such dirty, nasty adult humor, and I am all about it. It was dirty. Doesn't doesn't it start with a rape? No, I thought it was consensual. Okay, I, I, the description of the I man, thought it was you know, like, it was bursting like a into the house sort of and... romance novel. Oh, okay, you're right. Wait. I hope so. I mean, oh, I I never thought of it that way. I just assumed that it was like, oh, he's ravishing her, but she's into it, like. The animals are all fake, Kaylee. Oh my god! Yes, Yes. (laughs) that that puts it in a new perspective. I don't think I don't think so. No, I think it's meant to be like a romance novel. Okay, because just because someone throws you down on the bed doesn't mean you're not into it. I would hope that it that you are into it. I mean, who who is this man that actually throws women onto beds? Where the fuck is that man, Kaylee? Oh, haven't you heard? He lives upstairs. It's just that he only lasts for ten seconds. (laughs) A moment that seemed sort of relevant to today's political times is the one where John Cleese is just sort of a straightforward deadpan radio announcer and then some robbers come in and kidnap him and they they steal his desk and he keeps like his flat even tone he does it all the way and then they push him off of a pier and then he he falls into the sea at you know exactly as the news is finished and that just reminds me of how the 
the news is oh, operating no. now as if everything is normal. They're maintaining. They're oh. no one's going like, holy fuck, what the fuck is going on? Everything is completely upside down and backwards, and things like we're the the sacred institution of journalism is being stolen and defiled. They're just kind of wow. like, right? Am I? Am I that was that was my no. You're that that interpretation didn't didn't enter my mind, but you're you're right. Wow. Oh yeah, it was like what oh you said God. about seeing bomb in the young ones. For me, that was like oh that that's an interesting. I mean, obviously they weren't making a comment on something that would happen almost fifty years later, but it definitely rang true to me. I don't know. Oh my Jesus, you're right about that. I I was thinking more about the scene in the young ones when they're watching the news and they don't realize that the news camera is filming the outside of their house because they're there are terrorists and then suddenly the terrorists are in their house and they and they still don't notice hmm. that that was kind of more hmm. what i was thinking of again is that uh the, the the lasting influence but that's a yeah that's some good analysis about the news oh, man oh i thank you i plan to apply every pretentious lit major bone in my body to this because you know, something that I was nervous about in talking about this show that is so iconic and so popular and, and so, you know, funny, like explaining a joke can kind of ruin it. And I don't want to kill something by dissecting it. I hope that we haven't done that with any of the other shows that we've talked about. I think we've managed to do a pretty good job of analyzing them while also capturing what is fun about them. And yeah, there's <laughs> there's that moment where Michael Palin as an art critic is eating the art and I, I love I love that's a art. fantastic moment and I don't and you know I don't think that they were necessarily going for like this is a, a commentary on what critics do is that they consume and destroy the very thing that they are paid to analyze like I don't want to be that I don't want to be just eating this art I want to be <laughs> gently admiring it and pointing out to other people like look look how fucking great this is even you know putting aside my my little like annoying feminist complaints like i worship this show. hey i mentioned it's one of the best things in life annoying feminist complaints are awesome i agree i am honored to be called an annoying feminist i, I mean it's you can't help but we can only see this show through our eyes and that is the lens that that we will always be saddled with as as modern women who think. <laughs> Saddle up. Yeah, I'm I'm all about it. But I just <laughs> oh, my my love for this show transcends everything. Well, I'm sure there will be much more to say on that subject next week when we tackle season two of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Uh, so in the meantime, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to Anglophilia on iTunes. You can also listen on SoundCloud or by simply heading to the listen page on our website, anglophiliapodcast.com. We do welcome your feedback on our programming, guys, so give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter, at anglopodcast, or you can find us on ye old Facebook. Uh, but for now, that's it. Uh, we've had a blast. I would say cheers, but I don't want to sound like an asshole. Good night, America. <laughs>